0: As we continue this morning, I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word uh, back to the Gospel of John. John's Gospel and Chapter 2. John Chapter 2, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 13. John 2, verse 13. Beloved, hear once again the Word of our God. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things away. Hence, make not my father's house. House of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? And he answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, uh, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. As far the reading of God's word, may he bless us richly under it this morning. Well, friend, as we take up this text, This morning, I I suppose, I I don't need to tell you that this is perhaps one of the most well-known passages, not just in the Gospel of John, but of course in all of the sacred scripture. And and there's a good reason for that. Uh, This passage is well-beloved, because in, of course, this third chapter of John's Gospel, you and I see very clearly, in powerful ways, the love of God, the commission of Christ, the redemption of souls... And of men made new. All of those things, of course, merit our attention and and our hearts should be inclined to those themes. But as I've said to you before, I think when we come to passages like this, you and I ought to be mindful. That sometimes the familiarity of a text can also lead us to think that we know it uh, perhaps better than we do. We can intone the words, we can repeat the words from memory. But do we really know the text? I hope as we take up these portions of God's word, not only this morning, but in the several weeks to come, uh, that the text remains and perhaps even becomes more so a beloved text to us uh, as we hopefully understand it more clearly. Our text this morning really is from chapter 2, verse 23, down to the the third verse of chapter 3. And friend, just to remind you where we are, we are only, really, three weeks since the deputation had been sent from Jerusalem to John the Baptist. I'm referring, of course, to the events that you find in chapter 1, verses 19 to 28. We're only three weeks removed from that, not quite a month. And Christ, you remember, goes to the temple after performing the miracle uh, at Cana. He goes to the temple and and really... In a remarkable way, in a way that truly is miraculous, he clears this wonderful court of the Gentiles, this spacious place of all of its merchants. And friend, as of course you remember, the temple sat on Zion. It was really the focal point of the city. It of course caused a stir. And we saw last Lord's Day morning that that stir, of course, induced the Pharisees to send now a kind of deputation to Jesus. Just like they sent one to John the Baptist, they send one to Christ. Christ replies. And Friend, you remember that that conversation leaves, really, with the Pharisees both bewildered and incredulous? The events that they saw there in the temple, this, this one man, as it were, against all the merchants, and, and, and not one Roman soldier, not one Herodian servant, stirring a finger to stop him. Well, they don't understand it any better than before they sent the deputation to Christ. That's how the text leaves us. But here in chapter 2, verse 23, we find that Christ in in Jerusalem, after that moment, after that conversation, he performs miracles. And we're told there many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Now, we're, we're not really given any detail, of course, what those miracles are. The early church fathers would remind us that that we ought to see the, the cleansing of the temple as a miracle, but, but of course, as John gives that to us in the plural, he's not only referring to that event. We're not given any detail, but we're told this, that many believed in his name. And then, perhaps curiously, that 23rd verse ends with this, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them. My friend, That's perhaps one of the most curious, curious Verses in all of John's gospel. The word commit there is the word epistuin. It's literally the word that's translated elsewhere, of course, for believe. And the text genuinely ought to be translated or or could be translated thus. Many believed in his name, but Jesus did not believe in them. Whenever John uses the word believed in verse 23 to describe what the people do when they see the miracles of Christ. He uses the same word to tell us what Christ does not do to them. They believed in his name, but Jesus did not believe them. And that raises two questions for us immediately. The first and most obvious question is why? Why does Jesus not believe them? Well, as you look at verses 24 and 25, John gives us an answer. He says, because he knew all men. And then he concludes saying... "He." He knew what was in man. That's the reason John provides for us. He knows what is in the hearts of men. So that raises a second question for us. Well, then what is in the hearts of men? Why did Jesus not believe in these people? Uh, What was in them that Jesus saw that prevented him, that stopped him from believing them? Curiously, you come to the third chapter in the first verse there was a man, Nicodemus. Now, friend, I often often think when we approach this text, we do do imagine that the third chapter here begins an entirely new idea. It doesn't. In the original, the first verse of the third chapter and the last verse of the second chapter are joined together. There's a conjunction, of course, between them. And literally, what you could translate that is, that is either... And there was a man named Nicodemus. But more more accurately, therefore, or for instance, there was a man called Nicodemus. What John is doing is he's providing for us an example in the third chapter of John's gospel of one who believed, one who believed in his name, but one, as we find here, whom Jesus did not entrust himself to or did not believe himself. Now, in verse 2, you find this. This is precisely what Nicodemus says. He believes. No man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. That's what Nicodemus says. He was one who saw. He was one who believed. He says further, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher from God. Friend, I want you to notice the pronoun there. I think when we often read this third chapter, we think that this is a private conversation, really, between Christ and... And this Pharisee. And and, and in reality, it's not. Nicodemus is not speaking for himself only. He's saying, we. We, those ones who are with me in Jerusalem, we know that thou art a teacher. And friend, what you need to recognize here is that he is identifying himself with the same people John described in verse 23 of chapter 2. He is part of that contingent in Jerusalem that saw what Jesus did and he concludes that he must be sent from God. And so Nicodemus in the dead of night is sent, as it were, by deputation to Jesus to represent those who supposedly believed. But in verse 4 of chapter 3, we find out why Jesus didn't entrust himself, why Jesus didn't believe Nicodemus, and then why he didn't believe those whom he represented. Nicodemus wasn't born again, and Jesus knew it. As we look at John 3 then, friend, what you are supposed to understand here is that this is not a text about belief in general. This is not a text simply about regeneration. This is a text about discrimination. This is a text about Christ knowing, notwithstanding the fair professions that are made, but knowing the difference between true and false faith. This is a difference between people who believe in Jesus in some sense, but Jesus doesn't trust, believe their profession, because he knows their hearts. That's what this third chapter of John's Gospel is about. And so, friend, what this text teaches us here is that Christ distinguishes between true and false faith. Christ distinguishes between true and false faith. And I want us to see that under three headings this morning. I want us to see, first of all, the profession that is made. The profession that is made. In verse 23, again, we find here that many are said to have believed in his name. And what you and I can't deny here is that there is a kind of faith that John is saying is there. There's a kind of faith that he sees in these folks who he's meeting in Jerusalem. And we even know something of the content of that faith. It's given to us by Nicodemus, again, who describes himself as being of that number who saw what Jesus did in Jerusalem and accordingly believed Jesus was sent from God. What's the content of that faith? We know that thou art a teacher come from God. Now, what's striking is, he says here, if you look back there, verse 2 of chapter 3, he says, for no man can do these miracles. The word there is the same word we took up before. It's Simeon. so the word translated signs elsewhere. It's the word, actually, if you look back, um, if you look back at verse 18 of chapter 2, it's the same word the Pharisees used when they asked Jesus for a sign or for a miracle. Nicodemus is one who has discerned from the signs that Christ must be possessed of divine calling. He is sent from God. Before we go any further, friend, I think we need to step back and look at Nicodemus himself. Nicodemus represents those those who saw what Christ did and they don't ask for a further sign, unlike the Pharisees. They believed that the one who worked these things must indeed be sent from above. And that's remarkable because it stands in stark contrast to the incredulity of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had a sign, but they asked for more, not these ones, not these folks. These folks see what Christ does, and unlike the Pharisees, they come to a right conclusion. At least in some sense, they do so. I also want you to recognize that they believe this Christ, in spite of the fact that there was a proliferation at this time of false prophets. Uh, We find that in the book of Acts, that in the time of Christ, there were many who were rising up and, and doing wonderful things so as to deceive the masses. These folks ignore those, turn away from those, and see Christ. But thirdly, I want you to notice this. That after the Pharisees' long silence at the end of that text, you don't find any of them, anyone else, as it were, of that number coming to Christ but these. And so, friend, you and I are supposed to see here that these ones made a profession of faith that that seemed quite credible. Especially in stark contrast to the unbelief that we found in Jerusalem just in the last chapter. These ones appeared to be those who were true followers of Christ. Nicodemus appears to be a true believer. But friend, we can go further. I want you to think about the persons who believed. We're told here in verse 23 of chapter 2 that many believed. Many in Jerusalem believed these things. And then we're told specifically one man. One man who is sent as a representative of those of verse 23. He's Nicodemus, a Pharisee. Now briefly, friend, you and I know the Pharisees. We've encountered them thus far, but but it's important for me to know that there are thousands of Pharisees in Judea at this time. Uh, it's, it's not a small grouping of people. And these Pharisees, they represented, if you like, the scripturalists of their generation. You see, the Sadducees, they they were the ritualists. They they were far more concerned about about holding to the the ritual activities handed down to them by the traditions of their fathers than they were about the word of God. Not so the Pharisees. The Pharisees were committed to the inscripturated word. They were were most closely tied with the scribes just as, as the Sadducees were most closely tied with the priests. Nicodemus was one of them. He was one of those who, who argued vehemently and maintained even in the face of persecution that it was not just the fact that, that the Israelite, the true Jew, could go to the temple, observe, observe what God commanded there, and then go live like a Gentile the rest of the week, the rest of his life. Not so the Pharisees. The Pharisees demanded reformation according to God's word. And friend, it's important to remember here that they were also a persecuted lot. Within the lifetime of some of the folks we encounter in the Gospels, over 130 Pharisees were crucified outside of Jerusalem by Sadducees. The Pharisees were a persecuted people because they were a scripturalist people. Because they urged reformation according to God's word. That's that's the part of the world that Nicodemus belongs to. Furthermore, we're told that he's a ruler of the Jews. That means he's part of the Sanhedrin. And we discern that, of course, from chapter 7, whenever we find Nicodemus functioning in that capacity. Nicodemus is not just a Pharisee, not just, as it were, an itinerant teacher throughout Judea. He's a ruler. And we can even say more than that. Secular history gives us quite a bit about Nicodemus. Nicodemus' full name was Nicodemus Ben-Gomain. He had a famous brother named Josephus Ben-Gomain comes down to us in history known most as Flavius Josephus. Josephus records that his brother was a ruler of the Jews, was a leading Pharisee in Jerusalem at the time. His name was Benoi as well. Nicodemus later became his brother, that is Nicodemus, became a disciple of Jesus. And at the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, he lost everything as he sought to support Christians. So we know quite a bit about Nicodemus. But friend, I want you to notice here that Nicodemus, in spite of being this illustrious figure, in spite of being the scripturalist that he was, he goes to Christ and he calls him rabbi. And that should be shocking to us. It would be shocking to anybody who who would have been there. The Pharisees, the other Pharisees, left Christ, incredulous. Not so Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes and he says, "Rabbi, this great man, this great scholar of God's word, defers to Christ. It's a remarkable thing." And then we're told that this conference takes place in the night. And, and I, friend, I know, I know we are tempted to, to look at that and to see there Nicodemus's cowardice, and and so, and so you could, but friend. I want you to notice here, that also underscores, that underscores how willing Nicodemus was to brook all kinds of difficulties. Even his reputation. He, he comes in the middle of the night because he knows that this is a dangerous thing. But the point is he comes. He comes. This great man is still willing, even though in the dead of night, to come to Christ.
1: And friend, despite all of
0: those things, despite all of those things, Jesus sees it all as pretension. They make a profession of belief in him, but he sees that Nicodemus and the rest are not born again. Just briefly, friend, I want you to notice here that this is a text that reminds us so very clearly that false professions of faith appear good. False professions of faith appear good. They appear good to others. Uh, Christ refers to the Pharisees, you remember, as whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within, full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness. So was Nicodemus. He was a whited sepulcher, not born again. Those ones whom Jesus did not believe their profession, he didn't do so because he knew what was in them. They were whited sepulchers as well notwithstanding all of the accoutrements, all of the, all of the veneer their professions had. And friend, you see this staggeringly, don't you, even, even at the close of Christ's public ministry. You remember there as the disciples are, are together, and, and Christ says, one of you, after he said several times, one of you is a devil, and he, and he says, one of you will betray me. Nobody turns around to Judas and says, it's him, isn't it? They turn to themselves before they turn to the one who's actually the false professor. But Jesus saw through it. He knew who were his. But friend, there's something in this text also that, that we can't get away from. Not only are false professions apparently good in the sight of others, but, but Nicodemus, and, and especially all of those given to us in chapter 2, verse 23, they make some kind of profession. And there's no indication that these ones knew that their profession was false. These false professions then don't just appear, they don't just appear good to, good, good to others, they, they can appear good to themselves. You see that in the text, of course, in Matthew 7. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? I know that text is well known to us, but, but know what they're saying here. They're saying, we were professing you Lord over all. And more than that, we have have lives that seem to be marked by fruitfulness. And Jesus says, you remember in that text, apart from me you work iniquity, I never knew you. Now friend, I won't won't belabor the point because of course that's that's the, the theme for our mission this week, knowing the difference between a true and a false profession of faith. But, but I, want, I want you to see that in this text because this will highlight for us why this third chapter of John's Gospel is so very significant. It's not just a, a picture of a man be reborn. It's a picture of a man who thought he approached Christ to write, but he didn't. And Christ saw through it. What you see here, friend, is a false profession. Here, friend, Christ sees it for what it is. He sees it not taking the words that he hears, the lives that he sees. He sees the heart. And, friend, he deals with it accordingly. We'll see that in the time to come. That's the profession. We come to the perception Christ's perception. If you look at verses 24 and 25 of the second chapter, you'll notice that really we have the foundation for for what has gone before, but also for what comes afterward. We're told here that Christ did not believe them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Friend, this is a profound statement. It's a profound statement, and it drives our attention, doesn't it, back to the end of chapter chapter 1, where where Christ very clearly says that that he knew that Nathanael was an Israelite indeed, in whom there was no guile. He knew the heart of Nathanael. So John tells us here, he knows the hearts of those in Jerusalem. And what you and I are supposed to see from this text is that Christ is already performing the function of a judge. He's performing the function of the eschatological judge, the final judge. He already discerns the thoughts and the intents of the heart. What you and I are supposed to see also behind this too, friend, is that he does this as the incarnate son. Christ judges the hearts of men as man. Friend, what do we make of that? I think this is an aspect of our doctrine of Christ, his person, that we've often lost. Our forebears are quite helpful here. You and I are supposed to see in this text that Christ tabernacles among men as redeemer. He is incarnate, and as he is incarnate, he functions as mediator. But you're also supposed to remember that he, as judge, will perform that work in, as, as the God-man as well. In other words, friend, he is mediator and he is judge, according to both natures. And you see that here, anticipated, and you see that in one sense already given to us in our text. Here you find the judge of all the earth already searching hearts. It's a precursor of sorts, friend, to divine judgment. One of our older theologians, Er Ryson, puts it this way. As judge, Christ will be in that actual nature in which he was condemned for us, namely the human. And although judicial power is common to the whole trinity, it will be specially exercised through the incarnate Son. Well, friend, you have to ask the question, how do we make sense of that? If Christ, according to his human nature, is going to judge, does that mean that we're predicating in omniscience to his human nature? Are we predicating infinite knowledge to the human nature of Christ? And friends, stay with me here. I know this is perhaps a bit more deep, but there's something here we have to grasp. Anthony Burgess, I think, helpfully, as it were, unties that knot for us. He says, Just as Christ as man, as well as God, knew who they were that should believe him, so the human nature of Christ shall, by revelation from the divine, at the day of judgment know all the thoughts and secrets of men's hearts. In other words, beloved, what you and I are supposed to see in this text, and and we're supposed to, of course, apply this to the final judgment as well, is Christ as man, Christ as God-man, drew down upon the graces of the divine nature through the ministration of the Spirit so as to see the hearts of men as mediator and as judge. Friend, you and I, we are supposed to see Christ functioning in his office. And so we're told here that he had knowledge of Judas. He knew who were his. He had knowledge of Nathaniel at the end of chapter 1. He knew he was an Israelite in whom there was no guile. And friend, if you go to Revelation chapter 3, you find there the incarnate Christ seeing through the veneer of the Laodiceans seeing through their richness and all of their their wonderful professions and seeing that, in fact, their professions were false. Friend, you see, you see all of that in our text this morning. What you and I are supposed to see in this passage, and, and this is for our application, friend, is that the judge of all the earth already knows. He already sees... What other men don't see. There will be a surprise to multitudes on that final day who were genuine and who were false, but not to Christ, not to Him. And this, friend, underscores the interaction between Christ and Nicodemus. Nicodemus thought he was coming to a great teacher. Little did he know that he was coming before the judge of all the earth who already knew him, who already saw him. Our third and our final point this morning is taken from Christ's reply, and that's given to us in the fourth verse of chapter 3. Christ replies to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, uh, some have looked at this reply to to Nicodemus' statement and have said that there seems to be some incongruity there. And so they've actually gone on to say that perhaps we're missing a piece of the conversation. We don't don't need to go through those kinds of exegetical exegetical gymnastics. Uh, Really, Christ's reply is quite direct to what Nicodemus has just said. All you have to do is look at it just very briefly in the original. Nicodemus says, we see these miracles, and we know that thou art a teacher come from God. What does Christ say in reply? Essentially, he says, you see but you don't perceive. You see, but you don't perceive. It's striking in the fourth verse, isn't it? That here Christ focuses primarily on seeing the kingdom of God after Nicodemus says that we see who you are. Christ here is very very pointedly saying, you have some sight, but insufficient. And friend, what this teaches us very clearly here is that the regenerate soul alone perceives Christ aright. The regenerate soul alone perceives Christ aright. Peter, I will remind you, says to us very pointedly, it's only to those who believe that Christ is precious. 1 Peter 2. and Of course, in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know him because they are spiritually discerned. Friend, what you have here, and this this friend should should strike home, especially in our generation. What well, you have Christ saying here to Nicodemus, and what the word of God says to us time and time again, is that for all of his learning, for all of his profession, For all of those elements of truth that Nicodemus held. Because he was not born again, he did not see aright. right. Friend, as Christ says, there are those who are not far from the kingdom of God. But they're not in it. That, friend, is what is at heart in John 3. John 3, Christ is highlighting this very fact for us and reinforcing it powerfully. Only those who are born again truly see Christ aright. My friend, as we close, there are a few points that I'd draw down on. First of all, to the believer, what does this text hold out to us? I think this is one of those texts that we could quickly overlook, especially verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2. And we could see there only a judicial aspect of Christ's work as mediator and as judge. But I want you to think, friend, as a Christian, what does it mean for, for God to know you? Well, abstractly considered, divine omniscience really is benefiting to none. Um, abstractly considered, the, the knowledge of God really is, is, in fact, for sinners, not only not beneficial, it only accrues to divine justice. But for the Christian, whenever we consider the knowledge of God through the covenant of grace, well, then, then there's a wealth, of course, of comfort. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. He says that to the church under age and applications to the church today are still very pertinent. But is there something, friend, in our text about the knowledge of Christ that holds out comfort as well? And I'd submit to you that there is. Friend, as you think of Hebrews chapter 4, it's the idea that Christ is not only capable of sympathy, but that he in fact exercises that toward his own. That is a consolation and an incentive to God's people to go to the throne of grace. It is the fact that he as our incarnate, as our incarnate Christ, that as he knows now, even according to his human nature, what is necessary for our redemption, and can even sympathize with us, knows, for instance, the patience of the persecuted church in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, that you and I are to derive comfort. see, for those who are false professors, the knowledge of Christ, of course, is a terrifying thing. For the Christian, friend, it is, as the writer of the Hebrews reminds us, a boon of comfort, an incentive to draw us to the throne of grace. But of course, friend, this passage is a passage about discrimination, distinguishing the true and the false. And so it does come to us with questions. The first question to take really the whole text in account is a basic one. Do you live before the face of God? Or, if I could put it to you this way, do you live before the face of Christ who is judge of all? What I mean by that is, are you mindful that there is one who knows when others don't? Do Do you live lives in such a way that, that that thought is always present with you. Friend, we must be such people. Uh, there was a man in the 19th century who put, it to you this, who put it to us this way. He said, religion is really what a man does in solitary. Uh, what he does by himself in the quiet tells you what is his religion. Friend, do we take this knowledge with us into our closets? But the second point that I draw home for us is friend you and I are to see the heinousness of a false profession here Christ knows it he knows those who are his he knows this morning as judge of all even now who approach him aright and who don't and friend what does that what does that false profession do then does it not do the same thing that Judas's kiss did? Is it not the same kind of sin? Where men and women make professions of friendship to Christ, but Christ knows it's false, it's groundless. They're still at enmity with him in their heart. Friend, think about Judas on the on the day of judgment. Think, think about that moment. When Judas there sees, as he's resurrected and his eyes once again behold the Christ whom he betrayed, he'll also see the same Christ that he walked with for three years. He'll see the Christ that that he ate with, that he had fellowship with in one level, the Christ who entrusted him with the treasury. He'll see him as judge of all the earth. And he will see him as one who says, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And for the rest of eternity, and even now, Judas knows that Christ always knew. For all all of his vain pretensions, Judas will leave. And for the rest of everlasting years, he will remember that Christ always knew. Peter didn't know. John didn't know. The other disciples didn't know, but Jesus did. Friend, how many members of Reformed and Presbyterian churches will have a like experience? The heinousness of a false profession surely should grip us. But for our comfort and exhortation as we close, friend, this text holds out to us the Christ who is there. It holds out to us the Christ who is there. The one who is there... The one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who searches, who searched hearts then, who searches hearts now. And so, friend, if, if you are not in Christ, really, he is still calling you to himself. God has not taken you away yet. And so the call is there, it is free, if you would take it. And friend, for those who are in Christ, beloved, this text is to your comfort as well. Here you have the Christ who knows. The inmost of your own heart. Yes, he sees sin. But praise be to God, friend, he sees, he sees the work of grace that he began. And he sympathizes with that even which others don't see. Go to this Christ, friend. Go to him even this morning. Amen.